the ideas I have in my 40s for startups are actually better than the ideas I had in my 20s. And I think as much as we celebrate like entrepreneurship among young people, for me personally, it took a lot of business experience for me to realize what a good idea looks like. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. Me too. So Charles, I always love uh, getting the perspective of the venture capitalists that we have on around why is investing in startups and investing in entrepreneurs something that you're so passionate about? Of course, we'll get into your early story and precursor, but just in general, why are you so interested in helping startups grow and helping founders achieve their dreams? I've always really liked working with founders. You know, I've been a founder myself a few times. And I think once you go through that experience of starting something, whether it's successful or not, you end up with this set of feelings and observations about what you wish you'd had along the way. And what I realized is as much as I wanted tactical help while I was starting my various companies across time, what I really valued and needed in many situations was someone who both knew me and knew the business and kind of cared about both mm. and could sort of pull me aside when they said, hey, you're not on track. The thing you said you <laughs> wanted to do, it's just not happening the way you wanted. And, and, and someone who would have just said like, hey, like I care about you. You're working really hard on making this thing happen. And like, we could probably say the issue isn't a lack of effort at this point. And when I started reflecting on my startup experiences, I realized along the way I'd had people who did all those things for me, but not as many as I would have liked. And so when I got into venture, I decided I wanted to be the kind of venture capitalist that could partner with founders really early in their journey and help keep them accountable to themselves, but also be part of their support system. Now, Charles, you said that you've run uh, a couple of startups before and been in the startup community before uh, going into venture. Talk to us a little bit about the early days of Charles Hudson. Where did you grow up? Are you born and raised in San Francisco or did you find your way there over time? I'm originally from Michigan. So I was born in the northern suburbs of Detroit. I lived there until I was 18. And then in an unexpected twist of fate, I moved to Northern California for college to go to Stanford, thinking that it would be a quick four-year trip to the West Coast, and then I would go back to the Midwest or the East Coast. That's not what happened. 20-some-odd years later, I'm still here in the Bay Area. I've basically worked exclusively in tech or venture capital for my entire career. And I think part of it is that the time at which you graduate sometimes has a disproportionate effect on your career. And I graduated into the tail end of the internet 1.0 boom. And that's when just the idea of doing things on the internet was still really novel. And I just sort of fell in love with the promise of the internet for reducing transaction costs, for connecting people, providing entertainment. All of these things just seemed suddenly possible. And I couldn't imagine giving up the chance to be a part of that to do anything else. Charles, do you remember when you first interacted with a computer? 
you know, how did, at what point or how old were you when you first started to, to get uh, introduced to technology and potentially what technology could become? So I had an Apple QGS computer when I was at home and I used that mostly to play video games um, and learn how to type. <clears throat> the time I learned about tech and what it could be was I went to a high school where Scott McNeely, the co-founder of Sun, Microsystems was an alum. So we had email when I was in high school. Now we didn't have a lot of people to email other than kids at our school, but I started using email every day in high school to email my friends at school in between classes. And like, for me, that's when the light bulb went on that, wow, this technology is really powerful. I can sort of in a small world connect with my friends across campus at my school who I don't see and send them notes and exchange information. And this seems like magic. And that's when sort of I was first captivated. Did you have any inspiration from your parents or mentors like in the computer lab or like what, what was the kind of turning point that made you want to go to Stanford? Was it, did you want to go to Stanford for entrepreneurship and technology or is that something that came later on in life? You know, I didn't know much about Stanford until I stepped on campus. I'd applied to a wide range of schools. I thought going to school in California as a Michigander would be kind of cool. I'd heard really interesting things about Stanford as a university. And so I didn't come thinking I was going to launch a startup or entrepreneurial career. I mostly chose Stanford because of all the visits that I went on as a senior trying to choose a college. The Stanford students were the happiest of all. Of all the places I visited, they seemed to have the best mood, the best outlook. They had the most balance. They seemed to be enjoying their college time more so than any other school I visited. And, you know, the weather didn't hurt. But uh, that was really what it came down to. And I didn't realize that entrepreneur, naively, I didn't realize entrepreneurship and startups were such a big part of the school's culture until I got there. And everyone I knew was like thinking about startups or working at companies or had friends, especially like you went, I went, I graduated from Stanford in the year 2000. So we all had friends who'd graduated in 97, 98, who'd gone to eBay, Yahoo, these iconic internet companies at the time. And in their early twenties had tons of responsibility and were like really having a ton of impact. And that seemed really attractive as someone who was, you know, still in college. Looking back on your experience now, why do you think that you got that vibe that people were so happy? Do you think it was some, you know, just kind of the times? Do you think it's Stanford in general? Like, what, what was it about that campus and just that era that kind of left you so excited to go to school there? Wow, I've never really thought about it in these terms. I think I was lucky in that, like, Stanford back then was still considered a great school, but I don't think it yet had the national profile that it has today. And so this is before Chelsea Clinton, before like the huge waves of Olympians. Tiger Woods was on campus while I was there. It was like an ascendant school and it had all that optimism of like still being like kind of new. It wasn't like, not to take anything away from like the really long tenured, highly regarded East Coast schools. Those schools had a vibe about their like history and like always being considered elite 
in terms of like acceptance rates and like graduates and post-graduation outcomes for students. I just didn't feel that at Stanford, it still felt like really new. It's like the start, almost startup, a startup within the ecosystem of bigger, you know, it like has that potential and that momentum and it's, it's new and exciting. Uh, that's really, uh, I, it's an interesting way of thinking about Stanford in the early days. Yeah, I wish I'd had that vocabulary to describe it at the time. You did a much better job than I did. But it felt like, uh, it just felt like the right place for me. And I felt like immediately at home there, even though I'd never visited the campus before. Was there a moment during college that you decided that you wanted to become an entrepreneur and that sort of was the trajectory? Or did you graduate and first start in the job world and kind of go through a normal career path before eventually moving into startups yourself? It's really funny you ask that. I'll tell a story I don't think I've ever told publicly to anyone. The big aha I had was I lived with eight guys my sophomore year of of college. We lived in a big house together with a bunch of other people. And two of the guys in my little housing group had an idea for a startup. And we made all of your classic mistakes. We had like six equal co-founders slash people who were around the start of the business. And a couple of those folks have gone on to become really awesome entrepreneurs in their own right. And the process of like hanging out with those guys and hashing out what the company was going to be, what it was going to do, how it was going to make money, what the product should be, even though that company didn't work out and I was, I kind of like opted out relatively early, that process was really fun. And as a result, I got really engaged with this group at, on campus in Stanford called Stanford Student Enterprises, which is a bunch of student-run businesses on campus at Stanford. And it's funny, I'd always had businesses in high school. I had a landscaping business, I had a tutoring business, but I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I was like, well, these are just things I do to make money because they're ideas that make sense to me. And someone's like, oh, that's what entrepreneurs do. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm just like a kid who wants money. And like, I see this need in my community for someone to do these things. And so, and so like, that was the first time I realized there was like a name for the thing I'd been doing for most of my life. And I was like, oh, there's other people who do this too. And so like at Stanford, even as a sophomore and a junior, I started connecting with other people who were really interested in starting businesses of their own and who knew a lot more about the process than I did. And I felt like I had like found this secret community of people, like my own little mini tribe. And I had never known I was looking for them until I like found that there were so many people focused on the same thing. What This is kind of an interesting question that uh... – I don't know if there's a right answer. What is it about true entrepreneurs that attracts other entrepreneurs? Like, what what do you think is the energy that's created that, like, when you said that you found your tribe, like, what defines the entrepreneurial spirit? You know what I realized is most of the entrepreneurs I like spending time with, like, they're fundamentally optimistic people. Like, yes. they look at the world, they're like, this could be better. If only someone came up with a product or a service or an experience, like we could make this thing better. Like it's like it's funny on campus. There were a lot of great businesses that people started when I was on campus at, at Stanford. And a lot of them were just designed to solve their frustrations as students. 
whether it was like there was a company back in the day called Just Arrive that worked with like the process of trying to get into some of the more competitive sports tickets at Stanford. And they had a really cool, clever loyalty and engagement system around that. There was the Stanford Student Enterprises Bookstore as a counterpart to the university-owned bookstore as a different way to kind of like sell products to students. And I just realized like most of the entrepreneurs I meet that I get attracted to, there's these people who have this combination of like optimism that the world can be a better place and this like restlessness about sitting still and a desire to kind of just like do stuff and see if it works. And they have this bias towards action that like when you meet them, you kind of immediately see them in it. So, so Charles, I want to spend another minute or two kind of double clicking into the first entrepreneurial experience you had with your friends, knowing what you do now about, you know, early, early stage startups and how early businesses should be structured and all of that. On one end, you have like the Gary V's of the world that always talk about, you know, when you're in college or just out of school, you should be bunking up with eight friends, nine friends, like making it happen. So my question to you is, what advice would you give yourself back then to avoid some of the problems that you ran into? Like for, said another way, if you're a sophomore or a junior in college right now, and you're living with a bunch of really entrepreneurial friends and everyone's thinking of ideas, what's the best way in your opinion to set yourself up for success? Or maybe what are the questions that you should be asking to help you avoid the future pitfalls? It's a really tough question to answer. Uh, The one big takeaway I have from that entrepreneurial experience I had in college is, you know, most startups, if you're going to be successful, you're going to have a relatively small, small core group of people that are really at the heart of the business. Having five or six or seven co-founders, it's probably not realistic. At the end of the day, given the level of effort required to get something started, it's easier to do with a smaller, tight-knit, deeply committed set of people than maybe a core group of committed people and then like a surrounding fringe of people that are interested, but maybe not all in. Uh, the other thing I would say is the ideas I have in my 40s for startups are actually better than the ideas I had in my 20s. And I think as much as we celebrate like entrepreneurship among young people, for me personally, it took a lot of business experience for me to realize what a good idea looks like. And some of that was like the trial and failure process of being a part of startups. <clears throat> and part of it was also the time I spent at Google watching a really successful company operate and getting a sense of like, oh, this is what success looks like. So I like really admire people who in their early 20s or mid 20s or like something pre 40 can have amazing high quality startup ideas. That was not my journey. I needed more at-bats with business to really refine like the kind of ideas that spoke to me. And so I would say if you can afford to take risk early um, when you're younger, when you don't have children or other um, dependents, if your financial situation allows you to do that, you should. And I'd also say if your financial situation doesn't, like you're supporting family members, you have student debt, it's not possible. Don't beat yourself up about it you have a long time to kind of like spread your wings as an entrepreneur. It doesn't have to be the first thing you do right out of school. That's, that's a really interesting point because I think that for some people that have that entrepreneurial spirit, they feel as though 
if they're doing anything other than starting their own business, that they're basically like letting themselves down. But I think they may hear this sort of podcast and realize that you can actually gain a lot of your skill set from seeing other successful companies and then reapply those skills later on in life and that you can still have an exceptional outcome, even if it doesn't feel like it's the perfect fit when you're 18 years old or 19 years old, uh, you got to be patient. Uh, what was that experience like for you going into Google? Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, was this early days of Google, mid Google? What was what was life like uh, in the Googleplex those days? I'm going to try to get this right. <laughs> I joined Google in 2006. I want to say the company had about 4,500 to 5,000 people when I joined. So it was a decent-sized public company. Yeah. Not a huge one by any stretch. Um, and there were still a lot of really early people around. The company was still mostly search and search ads. And I'll never forget, there were just like so many crazy things that happened. Like Mozilla was down the street from Google. And I remember going to visit Mozilla and their little basically like a house of an office down the street with one of the product managers for a product that would then become Chrome. And he's like, we're just going to go down the street and visit the Mozilla guys. Wow. And I just remember like walking down the street and going over and visiting the, the team at Mozilla. And I think Google still had this, again, this optimism that we were going to figure out all of these new products and services beyond search and search advertising that were going to be great future businesses for the company. I remember when we brought on the, the Rightly team to do docs and spreadsheets. Uh, we were working closely with the Android team post-acquisition as they were building out Android. And it was this time of like great optimism because Google hadn't really gotten much wrong. And so there was this belief that like we have all these really smart people. We have this core business in search and search monetization that works really well and will allow us to fund these really big bets. And it really felt like the company was operating differently than every other public company out there, like much more future oriented, much less concerned about the current quarter, pushing the envelope. And it was like the greatest time because there was really this like, let's let a thousand flowers bloom view and we'll deal with the culling later. When you think about Google, like if you could scoop up uh, like a, uh a handful of the magic dust that is Google and sprinkle it on the startups that you mentor and invest in. Is there any one ingredient that you think Google just, they like, this is the thing that made them so successful around their product or their hiring. Was there anything in particular that you just oftentimes find yourself really reminiscing on, man, like that was an amazing part of working at Google. There were two things that really struck me when I was there. And this is something I've taken with me. One of them is there was this boldness at Google, which is like, if you were going to do something, you should try to do it in like an epically awesome, amazing way. Like if you're going to do email for people, make it free and like unlimited storage. And like there was this ethos that like, if you were going to do something back then, it had to be amazing and awesome to get people's attention. And if it didn't clear that bar, then why are you doing it? With all these smart people and resources, like why apply that energy and intellect to small problems? 
And I, I really took that with me as something to think about for startups. Like, hey, if you're going to try to solve a problem, really solve it. The other thing I would say is um, don't be afraid to blow up the business model for an established product category that you go into. And I think, for example, making the Android operating system free, making docs and spreadsheets free for the consumer when like those were products that were pretty expensive on the Microsoft platform. Um, if you're going to do fiber, make fiber insanely fast and also relatively inexpensive. And look, I think not all of these experiments work, but the cool thing about bullets is when they work, they make a huge difference. And um, I've always taken yeah. that with me, this like view that if you're going to try something, try to figure out a way to do the biggest, boldest version of it possible before you settle on something less. It's cool because that sort of thinking has like a subliminal message to recruiting because people want to be a part of big ideas that change the world. And if you start out of the gate thinking big, it, it's like a way of you bringing on more, you know, exciting people that feel that optimism. And, and I think that um, that's definitely something that, you know, I think about often is, you know, how, how do you paint the right sort of vision for the team that allows you to really go big and, and have the team excited about following in that journey? Um, that's a really interesting insight. Now, now, Charles, after you left Google, uh, did you have like a straight kind of uh, from Google down to a startup or did you have a little bit of like some time in between? I had the most random walk of a journey after I left Google. So <laughs> while I was there, let's you make it round numbers. I think Google was 5,000 people when I started and I was only, I was there for less than two years. I want to say it was 20,000 people when I left. And it felt like a completely different company. And I knew I wanted to be at a startup, but I had never actually worked at a startup before. I'd like been around them, but never worked at one. And so I met some great people through a side business I'd started around. Um, I used to be a conference producer. I started the side business when uh, free-to-play games first came from Asia to the United States and were not well understood. I sort of became, I don't know, like a community ambassador, event promoter, organizer for the subset of companies that were bringing those models to the United States. How did you know how to do that? Or like, um, what, where, where did you see Oh, I do nothing. <laughs> I do nothing about it. And sometimes like all good entrepreneurs, you have to be sufficiently naive. And I remember I met Min Kim from Nexon and I met some of the Tencent execs and the team at Congregate and a bunch of these people who are like, hey, we're making all this money selling virtual goods and games. And I like kind of dismissed it. I was like, that sounds silly. Then I spent time with those people and I was like, huh, you've uncovered some things about human behavior that are like not well understood and that have lots of other analogs in the real world. Could we work together? And I said, why aren't you guys on stage at GDC? Why, why isn't this story being told? And they had a long answer for me about just like, it was not a well understood area. And so they didn't get the attention they thought they deserved. And uh, I told them, I was like, hey, what if someone put together a conference for you guys? Would you come? And they all said, well, none of us can do it individually because then it will feel promotional for our company. We sort of need a third party person to corral people. And uh, naively, I was like, well, how hard can it be to start a conference? You get a space and you 
invite some people and stuff happens. So I emailed my friend, a friend of mine worked at Stanford. I emailed her and was like, hey, again, naively, do you think I could get a venue on Stanford's campus this summer to throw a conference? Not realizing how absolutely absurd of an ask it was. And to her credit, my friend was like, yeah, we found you an auditorium on campus that you can use this summer. And uh, in true naivete, I had no idea how much work went into making a conference. We blew out the power because everybody brought power strips because we didn't have enough power in this old, like everything you could think of that would could go wrong for like a new organizer or habit. But the content was so good. Everyone was like, when's the next one? I'm like, oh, I'm never doing this again. And through the process of doing that again and again and again, I got to know a lot of people in games business and um, met a team that I really wanted to be a part of and joined them and left Google. Is that Zynga or, or a different gaming company? No, I went to a company called Gaia Interactive, which was building kind of like a virtual world for teens. It was a really, really fun company to work for. I went from like the cushiest surroundings in Mountain View with like free lunch and everything to working next door to the San Jose airport uh, in an office space that I think previously belonged to Broadcom before they moved out. And it was like a way more Spartan, like traditional startup experience. And that was a lot of fun. And from there, I went to Serious Business. And then from Serious Business, which was acquired by Zynga, I left and started my own games company with a, a really good friend of mine who'd been an executive at, at Serious Business with me. And what what was going through your head at that the moment when you started your own business? Was it just like you felt like it was time for you to get into the, the driver's seat? Did you see a problem that you just had to solve? Like what... What was the momentum that you needed to get to, to really put yourself into that position? I just felt like the process of being a part of the team at Serious Business and like meeting all those amazing people was something I just wanted again. And it didn't make sense for me for a bunch of reasons to go to Zynga, so I didn't. But like that team of people I work with is still some of the best engineering product and just like general human beings I've had the chance to work with. And I really wanted that again. And, but I knew that I did not want to work on the Facebook platform anymore. I just felt like Zynga had like won that battle decisively and to go compete with them on that platform made no sense. I didn't want to work on iOS mm -hmm. because they already had like pocket gems and tiny co there were three or four early companies on iOS that were, were already well on their way to being the Zynga of iOS. And my co-founder of that new startup and I both liked Android. So we said, what if we went all in on Android, which was crazy in 2010. It's probably still crazy in 2020. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was crazy in 2010 to go all in on Android and to think that that was a good idea. But um, I had a co-founder I really wanted to work with. We thought we had a differentiated idea which I think we did. And um, we were just blindly going to go after it. And so we spent a year churning through other ideas before we settled on games for Android. And what was that experience like? Did you keep the team small and lean? Did it grow and you know take on venture backing? Was it bootstrapped? What was sort of the, the early days like for, the, for your game company? There were two of us for a very long time. It's me and my co-founder. Um, we worked 
in a crazy small office in Mountain View for a long time before we launched a product that was kind of like a LinkedIn on top of Facebook, like a professional jobs product. And nobody wanted to use it. Like people were like, get this off of my Facebook. Like I do not, want, I do not want these worlds colliding. And uh, we pivoted to Android games. And ironically, the company was profitable before we raised money. We had a team of three and we had a product that was live and we were making money and we decided that we would raise money to dramatically scale up the team and to hire some more people and build more products. And I oftentimes wonder what would have happened if we had just stuck with our original thesis was like go slower, build products that we had really high confidence in, keep the team small, focus on like IP that we really understood. But we didn't do that. We raised money and we hired a bunch of people and it didn't work out. We couldn't, we couldn't, it was too early. By the time we realized it was too early to focus on Android, we would have had this choice of like, do we stay focused on Android, keep the team small and like wait for the timing to catch up or do we like pivot? And we chose to pivot that in retrospect is like very low odds of success either we've developed. Interesting. So I want to talk more more about that, but just to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, one of the things that you loved the most about Stanford was just that that energy, that entrepreneurial like optimism and grit. And I don't think you can duplicate that more than working with one other co-founder in the early days, just the two of you guys. It's basically like all you have is optimism and grit. What was that experience like for you when it was just the two of you versus once you started to bring on new members, you know, what, what, uh, when you mentor kind of the next young batch of entrepreneurs, how do you help them weigh the pros and the cons of staying small and lean versus maybe accelerating faster than they should? When it was just the two of us, it was exciting, but it was so slow. Cause I don't code <laughs> like my co-founder is technical but I don't code. And so like, there were a lot of days where as the non-technical co-founder of a pre-launch early stage company, you kind of have a lot of time with your thoughts. And so like, I spent a lot of time talking to people and trying to sort, sort things out. And he and I talked a lot, but I'm glad we did it that way because by the time we brought in our first engineer, we were pretty sure we were onto something concept-wise with the company. Like, we, we identified a subgenre of things on Android that made sense. And my co-founder it, it had a really good idea for what, how we were going to build it. And it felt like it was the time to go faster. And if we'd had more people when we were still figuring out what to build and why, the company wouldn't have done any better. We wouldn't have progressed faster. We would have just, like, wasted more time and money. And so a lot of times I talk to founders and ask them like, well, what's your real constraint? And if your constraint is we haven't figured out product market fit yet, more resources oftentimes doesn't help. Like you have to just wrestle with that. Do you think it even more so makes it, do you, do you think that it, it adding more people in some cases can even widen the, widen the hole or the wound? I do because like it's more people to, co it's more people to coordinate and get on track with your vision. And that really slows you down. And it's a lot of work. 
And yes, sometimes those extra people have new ideas and they see things you don't see. But I think with product market fit, like the best thing you can have is more time to figure things out. And I think if the trade-off is fewer people and more time or more people and less time, I would almost always choose fewer people and more time when you're still doing deep hmm. finding. That's so interesting because it's that's pretty counter to like most venture backed startups. You know, they once you take on that venture funding, they want more people, less time. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's just interesting because I, I think sometimes uh, startups and founders and entrepreneurs think that they need to take on venture funding, but they don't really see the downsides of, you know, what you're talking about growing too quickly or, or adding too many people when you haven't established that product market fit just yet. How did you transition from being in a startup world and being an entrepreneur to eventually moving and becoming a venture capitalist? So my first job out of undergrad was I did work for Incutel, the PIA venture capital group. So that's my first taste of venture, but you know, I was fresh out of school. I didn't know anything about management or startups or any of that. And so I kind of eventually hit this wall where I was like, my lack of general business experience limits the kind of feedback I can give to founders and limits my ability to help them. And so I went back to business school and that got me back into startups and Google and that whole chapter of my career. Um, but what I quickly realized is as we were building Bionic Panda Games, that Android games company, and raising money and making progress, I'd been doing a little bit of angel investing on the side. And I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I just knew so much more having had that conference and events business, having been at Google, having been at various business, having just had a bunch of other experiences, I just felt like I knew a lot more. And I felt way more comfortable picking teams and like putting a little bit of my own money to work. But I also recognized there were limits to how much I could do with my own balance sheet. And as my angel investors and my angel investments kind of started to work, uh, I found myself wanting to do more investing, but also feeling like I was going to run out of my own balance sheet runway if I didn't have a new platform for doing this. And again, like I happened to have the fortune of making that decision at the same time that many of the established early micro VC seed funds were looking to expand their teams and hire new people. And it was at that point that you joined up with the team? Yeah, so basically I'd been angel investing for a while and I got to know Jeff Clavier at Uncork. And he and I started looking at angel investments together and I was like, wow, I'm learning a lot from this guy in the process of looking at angel deals together. There's some things, companies that I like and I'm excited about where he gives me really good feedback about things that don't make sense. He's showing me some companies I wouldn't have otherwise seen. I'm not known as an angel investor. So people aren't coming to me for deals. And um, I don't know, I just had a good feeling that like I thought Jeff had a really great track record and built a good brand with SoftTech. And relative to some of the other conversations I had going on, I thought I was like more in line with him in terms of where he wanted to build the firm. And as someone who's doing this on my own now, I'm not entirely sure how he ran a venture firm with no admin, no junior people, no partner, nothing, really just him. And um, I really thought working with him would be a lot of fun, and it really was. And when I joined, it was just the two of us in a little tiny office in Palo Alto. And now I look at SoftTech and Uncork, and they've got 
half a billion under management and three partners and a full team. And it's, it's amazing to see what happen, can happen just in 10 years. That's incredible. What, when you look at, like when you have a, you know, just out of school finance student or entrepreneur come to you and say that they want to get into angel investing, what's sort of your pros and your cons? Like when you try to help give them guidance, what, how do you think about angel investing and, and what sort of advice do you give to others that want to get into it? I always ask people like, what are your objectives with angel investing? If your objective is to make a lot of money right now, it's not a good choice. If your goal is to like be able to provide financial support to people in your network that you know and think have good judgment and to be a part of their journey, I think angel investing is great so long as you're not investing more money than you can afford to lose. Because, you know, the default outcome for most angel investments is they'll go to zero. Occasionally, you'll get a really good one that works out. And I had one of those when I was early in my angel investing career. But for the most part, you're probably not going to choose well. And so the other thing is if someone's like, hey, I want to figure out if I could be a good investor by picking companies to put my money in them. Again, I think that's a reasonable reason to become an angel investor. But I always tell people, however much money you think you want to write per check, take that pool of money, divide your average target check in half, and write twice as many investments as you think you want to write at half the check size. What's the thought process behind it, or what's your logic behind that? Repetition makes most angel investors better. And the truth is, like, if it's a really good company, the difference between you investing 5K and 10K isn't going to really change your life. But taking that 10K check and turning it to two 5K checks or four 2,500K checks lets you become a part of many more companies. And I think with private investing, because it's private, most of the stuff that happens inside these companies happens outside of you. So like a company that you think has become really successful. If you've been an investor since the beginning, you've been there for the whole journey. And you realize it probably wasn't all up and to the right. Um, and so I just think like being a part of more companies gives you access to more angel investors, access to more companies, access to more founders, access to more stories about how companies play out. And I think it's a better way to learn what works for you than it is to try to be concentrated really early. Now, Charles, I don't know if I if I miss this, but when did you transition from angel investing into starting Precursor? Because you know, I, I know you were talking about a couple of your buddies that you were learning from that went on to you know uh, basically do you know monster things in the VC space. At what point did you sort of transition away from being a solo angel to building Precursor? Yeah, so like I went from angel to soft tech on Cork. And I was there for five years. It's crazy. We went from $15 million under management when I started working there. They're at half a billion now in under 10 years. And as we got larger as a fund, it just got way harder to do these sub-million dollar rounds. And what I noticed is there were a lot of repeat founders that we had known and we liked and we could we could give them a million or a million and a half dollars pre-launch pre-product based on the strength of our previous experience with them there were also people spinning out of 
well-known companies or companies where we've been an investor. The person wasn't the founder, but we knew them well. And those people we could write checks to. There was this audience we just didn't have a good answer for how to solve, which were people who were raising a million dollars or less that we didn't know very well. Because the check was too small for our firm. And then the fact that you don't know them, you're like, oh, why am I going to write a check that doesn't fit our business model for a founder? I don't know. That seems like a crazy decision to make. And um, I thought about it a lot. And I said, well, this is a fun size issue. There's nothing that's like per se bad about these companies. They just don't fit our strategy. And I bet if I had a much smaller fund, they could write smaller checks. There's a ton of opportunity that would totally be inspect for us. And I thought about that a lot. And I was like, well, do I want to give up what we're building here at SoftTech on Cork and start a brand new venture firm? Or do I want to like stay where I am? And I just, the pull of doing something that just spoke to me authentically and like would allow me to invest in these really early stage companies that were pre-product and pre-market and just felt the market was moving away from funding those folks. Just, just felt too good to pass up. Charles, do you focus on one industry like gaming or in-app payments or things that kind of are in your, your background and your repertoire, or do you kind of uh, uh, veer away from those verticals and, and have several investments outside of that? What, what's kind of been your mindset around investing? great question uh originally i thought i would just invest in stuff i'd know and then games went through a period where it was just a hard business and i like stopped investing in games even though i had experience there so now what i tell people is we are a stage specific generalist firm we invest in pre-seed stage companies of all stripes uh, I've done everything from an infant formula company to an electric vertical takeoff and landing drone to pure consumer startups and everything in between. And we're decidedly focused on remaining generalists because I think founders are better at picking companies and sectors to work on than I am. And I'd rather just be an intake firm that can get to know all these really smart, interesting people who've chosen to start businesses rather than have like this really prescriptive view on what they should be working on. So knowing that no one vertical really like, you know, stands out to you or you have to go down that, that pathway, what sorts of trades do you look for in founders that you invest in? Like what, what are your immediate green flags that you see when you meet a founder that maybe you don't know or doesn't come in through a, re- a referral or, or a reference? Oh man, such a good question. I'd say the biggest thing we look for, and it sounds kind of simple, but I find that we don't find it often, which is the founder that has a unique and durable insight on the problem that they're trying to solve. And I, uh, we put that in that order because for me, the uniqueness is a big part of it. If the founder has what I've described as more generic thesis, that's like in line with whatever some things, well, then every other startup that competes with you is going to have the same point of view and you're going to end up in a really crowded market and durable just because most of the companies we back are pre-launch. And so like the, the viewpoint has to be still true in a year from now when your product's out and live on the market. So a lot of times we end up investing in companies that are resegmenting an existing market 
or we're dealing with a company that's taking an advertising-based business and turning it into a subscription business for consumer. So it tends to be like these kinds of insights are what we're looking for, and it, it works pretty well. What about the flip side of that question? What are some of the red flags that when you, uh, like when you meet a startup or a founder that exhibits these traits, you immediately shy away from them or, or tend not to invest in those sorts of companies? Boy, um, I think the biggest thing for me is we place a lot of emphasis on your unique insights around the customer or the problem that you're solving. And someone whose insights are mostly top down, like this market's really big, or like there's a lot of people with this problem, those give me huge red flags. Mostly because you're not selling to a market, you're selling to individual customers who have to make a decision about Mm -hmm. your product, the status quo, and all alternatives. And I find that people can't tell me a really good bottom up story about the fundamental nature of the problem that they're solving why it matters to whom i'm just not that interested mm-hmm. i really tend not to be that interested because my biggest fear is that like a problem that looks interesting on the surface upon closer inspection turns out to not either not be a problem at all or to be substantially less interesting than the founder thought it was and so i really need to know that the person we're backing has put real thought into who's going to buy it or use the product and why and has a really strong thesis around that. And that's hard to do if, all, if everything you're telling me is top-down market data. And now at Precursor, around what's the average check size? Like when, when startups come to you looking for investment, is there is there a, an average check size that you guys typically come in at? We typically will write a 250K check. 250K check. Mm-hmm. And... All verticals, you know, you, you guys get from all walks of life. It's just a, a matter of do you believe in the founding team and do you think they're solving a problem that, that uh, they can they can accomplish? What I always tell folks is 75% of our analysis is the founders and their vision. 25% is the market. And that's also just kind of a safety check for me to make sure we don't just invest in people that I think are great, even if the market isn't attractive. Um, I think you need both of those things to be successful. You need a good market and you need a really strong team. And the few times we've gone all in on team without regard to the market, it has not turned out great. How, how come or why, why, why do you think that that was the case? When you have so much conviction in the founders of the team, why did the market become a problem? You know, I'd have to say the the big learning for me is that a bad market is more powerful than a good founder. There's some Warren Buffett quote about when a bad market meets a good management team, the bad market always, it's something like that. I probably butchered it. But but I do think, remember, we're giving people 250K out of a round that's maybe a million dollars in size. And if, you're, if you've chosen poorly in terms of the market, that's not enough money to pivot. Now, I'll say one caveat, which is that there are lots of markets that look bad on the surface that are actually good upon closer inspection. I have no problem with that. So if you're like, oh, people have lost a ton of money doing XYZ thing in the past, 
Like, for example, we invested in a restaurant technology company in the middle of the pandemic. And most people were like, you're nuts. Like, restaurants are closed. <laughs> like, this is crazy. And I said, no, the fundamentals for what this person's doing make sense as restaurants begin to reopen. If you believe restaurants will reopen at some point, and his, the type that this founder is targeting are the most likely to reopen the most quickly, it's not bad. And in some ways, the, the tailwinds of negativity for his market are creating actually opportunities for him. Like, I'll give you one one example from our portfolio. We have a company that's in the um, vacation rental management space. And we have a couple of these companies that build vertical software in art and hotels. And a bunch of their customers would always push off installation and migration because they're like, I don't want to migrate future bookings or I've got like, all oh, I'm too busy. None of those people are busy right now. So it's a great time, it turns out, to get them to make platform switch because the next three months of their books, they're not worried about losing those bookings in a system migration. And they're not so busy with current business that they can't make time for it. So I think sometimes like you have to really study a business and you have to figure out what does the founder know that you don't know to figure out if a business that looks good on the surface is actually bad or a market that looks bad on the surface is actually good. Are there any verticals or startup categories that right now you're especially bullish on and, you know, right now you find yourself excited about and looking more into what, what market or what category do you find yourself most passionate about these days? I'd say we're more of a thematic investor. You know, one of the things that I feel strongly about um, is I like these businesses where you're fundamentally focused on the needs of the consumer and where you're asked of the consumer that you pay me directly for the product or service I'm providing. So I like consumer subscription businesses, as my team knows, maybe to my detriment, I love them. Because if I got a million dollars, you will almost always get real signal on customer willingness to pay. These are not terribly expensive businesses to build. I do think there's the opportunity that a million bucks, you can build the product, launch it, start asking people to pay and figure out if they're willing to give you money. And for how long, right? Like how many months? And for how long? And I like the clarity of those businesses because if after spending a million dollars, you can't get people to pay you, either the price is wrong, the product isn't good enough or both. But it's very hard to like deceive yourself. Whereas if you're like, hey, we're just trying to build a huge audience and we're going to turn on advertising later, you can continue to grow audience for a really long time before you pull that lever and it might turn out that when you pull it, it doesn't work or the audience you thought you could build isn't as large as you had originally thought. Uh, Charles, for the companies in your portfolio, I would imagine that during COVID, some of them really like struggled. Some of them really did well and performed uh, you know, even better than maybe you were expecting them to. Do you think that there's a fundamental difference? Like, are there a characteristic differences in the founding teams that were able to thrive through this pandemic? Or do you think that just some industries are, you know, kind of at the short end of the stick? Like, when you think about your real uh, success stories out of COVID versus the ones that weren't able to pull through, were there any kind of uh, patterns that you saw or any characteristic traits in the winning teams? I really struggle with this question. I was just looking at some data from our portfolio because someone had asked me, what's your best source of referrals? 
And I looked at our five best companies from fund one. They all came through different channels. And if I zoom out, almost every one of the channels with the exception of truly, truly cold, which has not yet delivered a great company, but I'm optimistic it will. Almost every other channel, we've gotten a great company from a law firm. We've gotten a great company from a bank that we do business with. We've gotten a great company from an angel. We've gotten a great company from, I met one at a conference, like you name it. I can point to almost every channel in our portfolio having generated at least one really good company in the portfolio. Again, with the exception of cold, that's I am 100% sure that's going to change because those companies are already getting far enough along in our pipeline that it's just a matter of time before one finally breaks through. Um, the same is true of founders. You know, one of our top performing companies in our first fund is led by, a, at the time, was a single founder, female, non-technical with the background really in business. And she's amazing. She's like a great founder. And she's like leading one of the strongest performing companies in our portfolio. We have uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend team in our portfolio that's doing great, like breaks the rules of like not backing couples. Uh, we have some husband and wife teams in our portfolio. We have some founders over the age of 50. We have some founders under the age of 20. We have some high school dropouts. We have some people with multiple degrees. So we have 200 companies. And the thing I've come to realize is all of our most successful companies are successful for the same reason, which is that the founders are incredibly hardworking, driven, thoughtful, insightful people who had some combination of insight, timing, luck, and strategy. But when you strip all those away, they look different gender-wise racial background, previous experience. Like some of our most successful companies were started by people who had no experience in the category that they're in right now. Like they did not know anything at all about that. On the flip side, we have some where the startups are born totally out of previous experiences. And so what I've decided is that like, if you make enough investments, you realize there's only a few combinations that like, can't work like we've never succeeded with like a team of two part-time founders that are like casually interested in the problem that they're solving and i hope to never invest in a company with that frame like that's not a good not a good filter that that's like a almost like a game show of like tr let's try to put together the most likely to fail startup like <laughs> yeah but like we've had teams of three that have succeeded teams of one um, companies that got out of the gates quickly. We have companies that took them three or four years to get out of the gates. So we've just seen so many different ways. And the thing it reminds me of is like every company, even as an investor, you think of them as a portfolio. Every company is unique. Every founder's journey is unique. And I think yeah, I try to constantly push myself to remind myself and the team that like every company is an out of one. Yes, we might have seen a company that struggled to launch and it took them a while and they lost a co-founder but even for all the similarities they have with previous experiences this one company that we're seeing right now is truly an out of one and we should treat it like that and we should support them as though they're an out of one and not not over learn the lessons positive or negative of what of things that have happened to other portfolio companies charles what are you most excited about right now it doesn't have to be business doesn't have to be venture just in general what what is kind of get you waking up in the morning pumped up? What, what are you most excited about? This might sound really specific, but I'm really pumped 
that the tech industry and venture is really doing a deeper fundamental examination around how our business processes impact who gets a shot at being an entrepreneur. And I think it's long overdue. I think early in my career, I bought into a lot of the narratives that like I'm, I now look back and say, I don't know why I thought that was true. And I think what we're going to realize is that the pool of people that have the capacity, interest, and ability to start companies is far greater than we ever realized. And I'm excited that we're doing this work of reexamination because I think it's really important because it's going to bring new people and new blood and new energy and new enthusiasm into the business. And it makes me happy that the next 20 years of venture and tech startups, I think are going to look very different than the last 20. Charles, I think that's an amazing way to, uh, to end the podcast today. Thank you so, so much for your time and your story. Uh, for anyone that wants to connect with you and learn more about Precursor, what's the best place? Uh, are you on the socials, email, website? What's the best place for people to, to you know, connect with you? Yeah, I, I probably spend too much time on Twitter, so I'm pretty easy to find there. Um, you can always just email me. I'm charles at precursorvc.com. We also have a startup submission form on our website. So if you just you have an idea and you want to get it in front of us, uh, I'm embarrassed to say submitting through the form is probably faster than emailing me directly because the form goes right into our CRM system and it'll pop up as, as something new that we need to take a look at. Well, thank you so much again, Charles, for jumping on the show. I'm Sean Goldfaden. This is Demo Day. Thanks so much, Charles. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me.